Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodeutchen. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Today I'm talking to Suhair Khan. As the head of Google Arts and Culture Department based in London, she develops projects with galleries and institutions around the world with the aim of making art and cultural materials accessible to all. Here she is, talking to me about what she'd put into her cabinet at 5 Carlos Place. From off-grid vintage shops in far-flung locations to an obscure gem of an art gallery in Japan. Suhe Khan, welcome to the Collector's House podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. It's wonderful to have you on the show. And we're recording at your offices, the Google offices at King's Cross in London. So thanks for having us here. Well, thanks for being here. You've been based here for the last two years. Um, tell us a bit, a bit about what your role is. Well, I work for a platform called Google Arts and Culture. And uh, it's an online platform which was founded with the intention of creating an incredibly rich digital experience for art and culture around the world. So my job is to work with museums around the world. We now have about 2,000 partner institutions, helping them to digitize their collections and also to think about how we can bring technology interventions to their collections, to their stories, and even in a lot of cases now to their physical spaces to see how the power of technology can augment or transform the experience of accessing culture. At the end of the day, we live in a world where many people cannot go to New York to visit the Met or cannot come to London to walk through the halls of the National Gallery. So a lot of what we do is thinking about just opening up doors and experiences. But then we also think very deeply about bringing the best of technologies like machine learning and augmented reality to change the direction of how art or culture is seen or perceived. And I was reading about how it's actually increased the number of people visiting these places because they've been looking at it online in a, in, a, in a digital way and engaging with it in that way and maybe finding out things that they didn't know about previously and it's sort of piqued their interests and so in that way it's increased the number of people who are um, being exposed to global culture. Well, we hope so. I mean, we can't really track how many people will go to a physical site after they read about it, but we certainly know of people who will go to an exhibition and then go home to learn more about it. Or in many cases, definitely, they'll find out about a museum or a cultural site that they didn't know about. And if they're visiting a place, they're able to go and access those physical sites. At the end of the day, there's no replacement for going, for seeing something, and for experiencing it for yourself. But if you can add on to that experience, and that's a very big victory for us. Yeah, because that's kind of an idea, isn't it? That it's not just um, replicating the experience or trying to mimic the experience of going to an art gallery, but it really is sort of enhancing it in that way of it's adding an extra layer. Um, so maybe if you do you have an example of a way in which you're doing that? Yeah, I think the most fun example is what we call our experiments. We're working, we have a lab in Paris, actually, where we have a team of engineers. Oh, yeah, it's kind of got this mysterious reputation. Yeah, Why is well, that? Why do people... 
feels is it because it's secretive or something well it's an office so it's it's secretive in the sense that it's like any old office and our creative coders and our engineers sit there together and are constantly working on new ideas a lot of them are never published because they're just experiments and we work very closely with our partner institutions and often one of these And the partner institutions are art galleries? They're all not-for-profit cultural institutions, or we work with artists, so we do artist residencies. Uh, we just launched a project with the MoMA in New York, uh, which is actually on their website now, where they came to us with a unique problem. They had about 25,000 photographs from the history of the MoMA that were of exhibitions and artworks, but they really needed a team of people to sort through them and to see if they could match them to the paintings or the time at which they were taken. And so our engineers worked with the curators at the MoMA to use visual recognition algorithms to run through the photos and to match them against the already digitized artworks that the MoMA has in their collection. And we ended up matching most of those photos with a particular time or place. So that's one very simple example. Uh, and another example is uh, we've recently launched in the US uh, a feature on our app called the Art Selfie, where you can take a photo of yourself and the photo will be run against our database of portraits in the collection from museums around the world and you might find your best match so this is a really fun playful feature people are able to look for themselves in different ways using the app it doesn't necessarily have to lead to anything productive but often you'll find paintings that are discovered after uh, years of just sort of languaging in a large collection and also very surprising fun discoveries. Whose idea was that to come up with that? It's a quite clever idea. We went viral, didn't it? Yeah, that was a couple of our engineers in Paris who've been working on it for a long time and are also just really smart. <laughs> and this is the Collector's House podcast where you talk about things that um, have inspired you or bring your life meaning in some way. Um, what is the first thing that you put into your cabinet? So the first thing that I think I would put in my cabinet is the probably the photo of a couple of my favorite museums around the world. I've lived in a lot of cities and I've traveled a lot for work and I found that the best way to experience a city for me is to wander around through a museum and particularly one which perhaps isn't on the Wait, main... Wait, wander in real life or in virtual world? Well, so my or job does it not is... Matter? <laughs> I think it matters. My job is really to think about technology and storytelling and how we can bring technology to create stories around collections and institutions. But at the end of the day, if I have a chance to go, uh, I will definitely go. Uh, part of it is just knowing that you're in a place that you wouldn't be able to go to otherwise and really experiencing the vibe of a city. One example in Tokyo is the Nezu Museum. It's in the middle of Aoyama, which is the shopping district. So if you need a break, you just wander over to this incredible building, which was designed by Kengo Kuma. It has beautiful Zen gardens surrounding it, so you can go for a wander, get a cup of tea, and then explore this collection of Japanese artwork. So it's as much about seeing the art as about just being there and having that breather and feeling like you wouldn't be seeing any of this anywhere else. So for me, it does, it matters, but you have to be in the right state of mind, and obviously you have to be lucky enough to be there. What um, are your other favorite galleries? So in London here, I love the Hayward Gallery. I feel like it's always been very revolutionary. They've always brought to life new artists. Anthony Gormley had his first solo exhibition there. I love the building. It's brutalist and intense. And I've never seen something there that was boring. And I've always felt like I've taken away something very unusual. And Do you want to talk a bit about the, collab the collaboration that Google did with them recently for its 50th anniversary? Yeah, definitely. So we worked with Ralph Rugoff, who's also going to be now the curator at the upcoming Venice Biennale. 
and thought about how we could work through the history of their archives to tell the story of the gallery because they were closing for a two-year remodeling and they just recently reopened. So we looked at their archives. They have a massive room where you have to go by appointment only. Uh, you need to sit down with all of these documents, go through boxes, read through them, pick out the things you want, and hire them off for X number of hours. And we thought about what if we just digitize this and bring it online in one place? Would that work for the gallery and would that be interesting to people that wanted to learn more about it? And because they don't have their own collection, it actually was even more valuable because it's really telling the story of this institution. We digitized their entire archive. We brought it online with stories around 50 of their seminal exhibitions over 50 years. And we launched it on our platform a few weeks ago on the occasion of their 50th birthday. So, so it's all there, all available for anyone to look at, all for free. For free. And again, really, even if you were to go, you wouldn't be able to easily access it. So it could be a tool for researchers, artists, and obviously for the artists that were involved, it is a really fun thing to see the entire history of their exhibitions, things like invitations to the press preview and articles and just a lot more detail than you would find anyway if you did go to one of those exhibitions. What about some of the other... I was hoping you might mention some more obscure galleries that people might not have heard of before. Well, I'm from Pakistan, so one of my favorite museums is actually in Lahore. It's in the old city of the Lahore, which is called the Wall City, and it's pretty impossible to find. It's sort of at the end of winding alleyways, and you have to go by appointment. And it's a seventh-generation-run private museum called the Fakir Khana Museum. The last name of the gentleman who runs it is Mr. Fakir. And his family were the original collectors for the Maharaja Ranjit Singh, who ran the entire region of the Punjab when, well, right before Queen Victoria, I think, was queen. Um, they have everything from ancient Gandhara artifacts to old Persian manuscripts, copies of the Quran. Uh, one of my favorite things there is a ring that was belonged to Raja Porus, who was defeated by Alexander the Great on the banks of the Chelim River. So I find you're just standing there amongst all of these treasures and you can't really believe that you're close enough to be able to touch them and to talk to the people who have collected them over generations and, and have those uh, with them. And actually, amazingly, they're also very forward-looking. A few years ago, we went in and we captured the entire museum on Google Street View, and they loved it, and they love that it's online and that they can open it up in different ways because they don't have the resources in themselves to run like a regular museum. I love that. Um, and your background, your your upbringing was quite interesting because you were born in California, um, and then you spent time in Europe. I think you went. Do you know you went to school in in the UK, um, and then you moved to Islamabad when you were twelve. What? Tell me a bit about what your upbringing was like. So I've I've moved a lot, and I've been in many different places, and I think. At some point, my parents really wanted me and my siblings to experience our own culture and to know where we were from in a deeper sense. So it was a big shift, changing cultures and countries and schools. Moving. Both your parents from Pakistan? My mom is actually Indian. And she found the adjustment probably even harder than we would have done. But, um, but I do think that that shaped me in many ways. It shaped how I see the world and it really has grounded me in a very different culture than I would have experienced otherwise. Um, I think I was raised 
with a lot of curiosity just because I was constantly forced to adapt and to meet new people. Um, and my mom runs an art gallery. We've grown up with art and literature. My grandmother's a writer. Uh, and a poet and that sense of seeking culture in different places and also probably seeking my own place in different places is why I probably connect more deeply with cultural spaces because there is something of a commonality in all of them but also a window into a new world that is harder and harder to find with everything being I feel much more uniform because of things like everything being accessible in formats, you know, on the internet or whatever. So that's why I'm always very careful about thinking about, you know, the experience of something, feeling a thrill, feeling a sense of curiosity and wonder, whether it's online or in person, but not just thinking that we're digitizing things for the sake of just having them there because that's not what they represent. They represent a lot more. And what's the second thing you put into your cabinet? Um, so the second thing I think is, um, well, I love collecting vintage and because I travel a lot, I'm able to do that. Um, Tokyo is one of my favorite places. When I go home to Islamabad, I have this amazing antique store near my home where I collect these Afghani tunics from Afghanistan, which I'll wear over jeans in the winter. So I would definitely pick one of those. They're beautifully embroidered. Sometimes they have amazing stories. Sometimes it's a bit sad because they were from somebody's wedding trousseau and you feel like you've taken a little bit of their life. But I think I'd add one of those to my cabinet. Um, in general, I love collecting things when I travel. I love going to stores that I know I wouldn't be able to find otherwise. In Bombay, my favorite store is called Bungalow 8, and they do a lot of beautiful jumpsuits and silk gowns and quirky prints and oversized shirts, uh, lots of chunky jewelry, but nothing is online. Uh, the owner is this incredibly glamorous woman, and she's always thinking about how to put things on her website. What's her name? Her name is Maithali Alawalia, and she's the kind of person that you just want to look like and be like. And uh, she has impeccable taste, and so it is a reason to go and mm. to seek. And she's usually there, and she'll give you dead honest advice. How long has she been there, and what's the story behind that shop? So she's grown up in Bombay, and she has probably run it for the last 10 or 15 years. Um, I think she went to university in the U.S. and then decided that her mom was a jewelry designer and she wanted to be a collector, and um, she sells everything from furniture to objects. Uh, she has a beautifully set-up shop. Um, I don't know if it's going to be a little bit like what Carlos Place is going to be like, but very much um, thinking about vintage and heritage and thinking of actually the idea of dressing in Indian clothing without it being, you know, a sari or, a, you know, a skirt and a short shirt. It's very contemporary, um, but it very much is representative in fabric and design and cut and often in print of of India. And that's what I love about it is it's it's sort of not boxing itself in, but it's very much designed with a particular aesthetic in mind. And what are the other shops that you like from your travels around the world? Um, well, there's one in London called Workshop, um, which I love. They collect lots of designers, Catherine Hamnet from um, Norway, and uh, lots of little quirky French boutiques. They carry Harris tweed coats. Um, and they sort of just have this amazing accumulation of things that I love popping into and buying. I'm really bad at online shopping because I never return anything. Um, so once so, you've got it, 
what's that's the word it. I've got it um, which is which is great if you know your you're like the size. online shopper's dream <laughs> I'm, I'm, the, I'm the dream and yeah. I also love the 90 minute delivery because yeah. I sort of remember an hour before and, and I need something um, but I also just love the idea of just looking at things and touching them and, and feeling that you've got something that you couldn't have got otherwise but these shops you're mentioning they don't have websites they don't have websites you can't buy anything online and that makes them somehow slightly more appealing I think appealing I think there's probably something about feeling like you're in on something and um, and part of also traveling and feeling like you're you've taken away a little bit of a piece of a place with you which uh, in an affordable way and so that I really love um, and I think, you know, I, I hope that things don't change too much. But I also, of course, I love the idea of it being accessible. And these stores probably would benefit from getting out to bigger audiences and to more designers. So I think that. And um, I don't know, there's another shop that I love um, in Tokyo called Plain People. And they focus on very Japanese cuts and fabric. And they're near the Nezu Museum. So if you're ever on that street, I would stop by before. It's a good tip. And you had, it seems like you had a lot of culture in your upbringing um, from your mother and grandmother and so on. Um, but then you, you didn't go into a job that was in culture after, after school. I mean, I, I think you studied, you did business. Um, how did I end up at Google in this job is just a story of following, to be honest, what I really wanted to do at any particular time. So I studied for my undergrad economics and political science and um, I think having grown up in... That was it, Harvard Kennedy? That was that was my master's, um, yes. Um, but I, I, I sort of, I always felt this desire to work in a field where I felt like there would be impact at the end of it all and that where I could feel like there was uh, a connection with my work to economic development or politics or something. But it ended up being, um, my first job ended up being in finance in New York right before the financial crisis, a very exciting and weird time to be there. Your father's a banker, is that right? My dad's a banker. Did he encourage you to go into that? He definitely encouraged me to go into that. <laughs> was he happy and when he was you very happy job? with me yeah. and more confused and flustered when my younger sister went into art and went to work for Sotheby's and uh, po- followed a different course. Um, but as a Pakistani dad of three daughters growing up, he actually just encouraged us very much to be ourselves. And in hindsight, I look back on that and think of how it's shaped my following this sort of circuitous journey. Um, So yeah, I started in finance and then I did my master's in international development at Harvard and then um, ended up joining Google, moving to Mountain View, uh, which is where the Google headquarters are in California and living in San Francisco for a few years, uh, working more on strategy. So thinking about product strategy in different countries and more big picture how Google was growing. Why do you think you got that? What was it about you that that they wanted to have you for that role? I think it's more what is it about Google that is much more open to looking at people with different backgrounds who have had unique experiences and who they feel have a curiosity and an experience that isn't just defined on paper as leading into a particular job. And that's one thing that I think the entire tech industry has emulated over the years and is really great is you don't have to have done a particular thing uh, to, to fit into a particular job. And that's actually why I'm sitting here working on art and culture at Google. Google is because I've been offered the opportunities to work on 20% projects, which is actually how I started working on the arts and culture. Do you want to explain what the 20% project is for people who might not know? Yeah, so the 20% idea is unique to Google, where any employee can take 20% of their time to start their own uh, 
product to come up with a new idea from everything as obscure as the science of dreaming to uh, things like Gmail, which were invented out of a 20% project to the team I'm on right now. Uh, the arts and culture team at Google was actually started by a bunch of Googlers who felt like they wanted to see more paintings What and does artworks. Googler mean? I saw on your that you spent time as a Googler. When you first joined Google, you were a Googler. What does yeah, that mean? Yeah, you're a Googler when you are at Google. Uh, if you're a dog at Google, you're a Doogler. A dog? Uh, a dog. We have Google dogs. They're called Dooglers. Um, if you leave Google, you're a Zoogler. It's a very internal link. There's actually a website um, dedicated to explaining Google terms, and all of these are on them. Noogler is a new Googler. And um, it sounds really weird now that I'm saying all of those words, but actually they're totally normal. <laughs> totally normal to us. Um, so that's, that's, that's basically how um, you, know, you start a project on the side, you think about what's missing or what you could do, you have an idea. So this team felt like there wasn't enough art content on the internet at the time in 2011. There was, um, every painting had a watermark on it or it was really blurry, blurry and museums were terrified of putting stuff online. Things have obviously changed, but a team of people went into the Met and the National Gallery and the Tate and they said, well, what if we took incredibly high gigapixel level resolution Yes, you have that photos. special camera. Yeah, you zoom into the tiniest details. You can see everything from uh, the fact that Vincent van Gogh never prepped his artworks or his canvas before he painted on them to sometimes cracks and flaws in things like preservation to every single mosaic on the ceiling of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, which is 80 meters from the ground. So it is fun and innovative and really resonates with the idea of why we do it. We want people to be inspired, we want people to have fun, we want them to discover. Um, so technologies like that really kicked off the project and the team and that's how it's grown since then and that's actually how I got involved as a side project, thinking about how I could work on different aspects um, of thinking about art in emerging markets at the time and showcasing cultural institutions uh, in countries that were less covered and was just really inspired by what the team does and really because I was inspired and because they felt that I was passionate about it that's really how my transition came into this team. After you spent time in San Francisco you then moved to Singapore for three and a half years. Yes in Singapore I was working on emerging markets so a lot of obviously as you know technology is now in the hands of people all over the world. Uh, tech companies are constantly thinking about how they can make better products increasingly for people who don't have the best Wi-Fi connections. At the time that I moved to Singapore the whole smartphone revolution was just taking off so people for the first time were able to very easily afford a phone that was totally interactive and were trying to figure out how what to do with it, how to communicate with one another and they almost invented their own internet. So. Everything from figuring out how to launch Google Maps in a country like India, where there's no real addresses in a lot of places and things are defined by around the corner down the street next to the petrol station, to thinking about how we could solve for payments issues in countries where uh, credit cards were not being used but people had phones. So that was really exciting. I ended up in really places that I'd never been and could never have imagined I would go for work. Laos. 
um, I knew the best coffee shop in Jakarta. I would go to Manila all the time and uh, navigate on my own in Ubers and um, Gojeks, which are the local form of Uber now in Southeast Asia. So it was a time of a lot of adventure and it was a lot of time of my experiencing cultures that I had never known existed and learning about Indonesian contemporary art and how incredibly important it is and how it has grown because of uh, the the collectors that have run governments there and have really helped to facilitate art there as patrons Um, and really realizing that contemporary art in many forms does exist but isn't really showcased in many museums or auction houses in the West Uh, and realizing the importance of things like the internet to give them their own platform so that they can actually share with the world in a way that isn't being done enough I think right now. What else are you going to put into your cabinet? So in my cabinet, since we're talking about artworks, um, I do also love to collect art, which I can afford. Um, My mum runs an art gallery in Pakistan, and she focuses on contemporary Pakistani artists. So because she has educated me and I know what I'm doing and I can have lots of time to think about it, um, I started with collecting a lot of Pakistani young contemporary artists. The school of art that really excites me is called Modern Miniature, and it is this amazing reaction to very tumultuous history in a very complicated country where a school of art has decided to take the idea of modernism and abstract art but connect it back with the ancient techniques of Persian miniatures. So Persian miniatures started off as an art form in ancient Persia, what is now Iran, in the 13th century. And the goal was to create the most amount of content and the most detailed story in the smallest amount of space. So they did things like use even a human hair to paint in order to fit in as much as they could on these pages. And they were also very beautiful and intricate. So these artists are now turning away from the idea of looking at rulers and kings and princesses as the subjects of their paintings and looking inward. So I guess more millennial, if you will, thinking about the idea of the self and your own issues with your family or your place in society or even violence and politics and um, creating those in miniature form. So one example is this artist called Imran Qureshi who painted the rooftop of the Met a few years ago. And um, it looked like he had spattered the entire rooftop of the Met in New York with human blood. But when you leaned into these artworks, you actually saw really intricate paintings of flowers and um, birds and flora and actually there was so much more to what he had painted than what met the eye and that was what he was obviously trying to convey with representing countries which are developing or in political flux and uh, especially the Islamic or Middle Eastern world which is always seen in a particular way at this time of great upheaval. So the artist or the artwork that I love is something that I own and it's by Noor Ali Chagani. He's from Lahore and he uses little bricks and sculptural pieces to create miniatures. He stacks them together. They're very representative he says of the architecture of Lahore but also he lines them up to try to signify things like his own place of belonging in society and trying to find internal balance and as a practitioner of yoga and somebody who thinks always about how do I find the balance between traveling and feeling stable and settled in a place and obviously managing work and life that really resonates with me is this idea of seeking balance and realizing that each of us are quite tiny and compressed and you can do that within a very small space. What kind of yoga do you do? I do all kinds of yoga, mostly vinyasa. Um, and do you join classes when you're traveling or do you do, it, do you self-practice? I try to join classes because it's very sad to be alone in a hotel room. Um, 
But I try to go every couple of years back to Ubud, which is, I did a yoga teacher training there a few years ago, and that's kind of where I feel like everything makes sense and, and falls together in one place. And when I, you know, when I first moved to San Francisco from New York, I was very sort of confused by this very, what I thought was a very granola hippie lifestyle of making your body your temple. And, um, you know, over the years, I've been converted a lot to the Gwyneth Paltrow way of seeing things and thinking <laughs> about um, how to really seek your own balance and that everybody, um, you know, there's no one size fits all in terms of caring for yourself and knowing what makes you happy. And, and that's helped you when you're with your traveling and it has helped dealing a lot. with jet lag. Jet and lag, insomnia connecting with people if there's a yoga community around the world that you realize uh is surprising in its forms and also um i think the spiritual aspect of it is very universal and one of the things that i have thought about is living in different places is you know where do you belong where do you fit in where is your actual place and i love the idea of everything just being within yourself and being able to find that and see that connection with others how do you Find, how do you stay informed about what's happening globally in culture? Well, in a lot of cases, we're very lucky because now we work with so many institutions around the world that we're constantly being updated by their work. They will come to us when they have important uh, openings or exhibitions or opening new wings. And that is a very fortunate place to be in because it's constantly coming to us. However, we also rely on a team of people around the world whose job it is. We have people in every country who manage partners with individual institutions. So they are tracking very closely not only our relationships with these institutions, but also what is upcoming in a year. Is there a Biennale coming up in Sydney? Is there an important new museum opening? Um, also culture shifting. As you know, there's a lot more culture that's available online. Artists are now thinking a lot more about what's digital and how to create forms of art that aren't just site-specific and that's something that we're fortunate because we're a tech company to be thinking about too and, and is it, did, it take, was it, did it take a while to develop these relationships I can imagine there must have been some resistance from our institutions yeah. initially some institutions were very open uh, the Tate for example is a great example Nicholas Sorocha was very open from the beginning to the idea of the Google art project others have taken years uh, to sign on uh, and some of them we've only very recently launched very important museums have simply come online for the first time with us in the last couple of years because of resistance because of uh, a different way of managing their own collections a different pace of digitization often a lot of institutions have been around for hundreds of years and they don't need more visitors and they don't need a different way of telling their stories their curators tell their stories in the way that they need to be told so I think I've also learned very personally to respect that and to respect that balance between how important it is to, you know, a friend of mine now who's the curator of medieval manuscripts at the British Library. I would never have imagined that I would get to know such a person. And he spent his entire life thinking about a few manuscripts and how to decode them, how to describe them, how to present them. And so it is only my job to present him options and to present a platform. It is not my job to tell him how to showcase them. That's really for him to do. And I think that is something that is unusual to us as a team at Google is speed isn't everything because at the end of the day, our partners are institutions that work in very different ways from our traditional partners. And we have to respect that or we're not actually going to do the best for showcasing their work. So that does mean it has taken more time than it has for other teams at Google to just expand because we do things in a way that involves a lot more one-on-one -on -one conversations and is 
probably just by default of the institutions that we work with, much more measured, I think, than other teams I've worked with at Google. You personally, what do you read um, in terms of titles, websites, Instagram accounts to stay up to date and connected with what's going on? Right. Well, I subscribe to the New York Times, which I, th I love their app and I love the experiences that you have. They have a lot of augmented reality and I, I think that they cover world news in a way that kind of belies their name. Um, in terms of things that I buy, I love Gentlewoman. I love that magazine. I love things that are very aesthetic. Um, I read the New York Magazine art reviews. I follow Jerry Saltz, who's an art critic. Um, and I'm thinking a lot these days about architecture. So I've been reading a lot of design and wallpaper and thinking a lot about architectural digest and publications that are focusing on this content-wise because I'm trying to learn as much as I can about this about this area. Uh, and the rest of it, I think, uh, is like the rest of us. Whatever comes to me, if I'm on a plane, I'll buy a New Yorker and a Vanity Fair and read them and uh, spend that time absorbing information. But I think what I feel today about culture is that it's not just about art or architecture or politics. There seems to be a confluence of all of it. And maybe that's always been the case. Uh, and I'm just recognizing it now. But uh, it's never standalone. Movements in art, for example, uh, are driven as much by cultural and technological forces as they are by um, you know, the fact that an artist comes up with an idea. And we've seen that with this big expansion in art, contemporary art coming from the Middle East. We're seeing it now with digital art and a lot more emphasis on artists thinking about things like VR and 3D printing and their methods, mm. even if their final pieces are very traditional. Mm. And um, that's something that I think will constantly keep changing. So just thinking about a museum show, I don't think is good enough. Let's go back to your cabinet. Yes. What else? I think this is, is this the fourth thing we're putting in there now? Um, I think so. So uh, what I did want to talk about in terms of my cabinet... I'm looking at architecture, like I said, and I'm thinking a lot about the idea of the sense of wonder we get when we look at a beautiful building or we're in an incredible city. And actually speaking of the idea of politics and culture being completely interconnected, I feel like architecture really represents that more than any other form of art. It's functional and yet it is beautiful and designed and it is defined by culture, by things like occupation, religion, by environmental factors and climate change. And that's something which has really been playing on my mind in terms of how can we document history and culture in ways that are surprising. For me, the idea of human achievement and ingenuity can really be described by showcasing the changes in architecture over time and also the ways it's been used to create impact in cities. Um, the thing that I'm going to put in my cabinet is actually the inspiration that got me to thinking about buildings and why we construct them and why we care about how we construct them. And it was watching a film, a documentary by Ai Weiwei on uh, the refugee crisis. It's called Human Flow. And in it, he actually showcases uh, refugees all over the world in different crises. And the thing that resonated most with me was that no matter if a woman is standing in a refugee camp with a piece of plastic and a few pieces of wood, she would create a roof over, the, over her children and create a place for them to live. And so there is something very, I think, evocative about the idea of creating shelter and creating something that covers us and surrounds us. And that's why I started thinking about architecture. 
But as I expanded in thinking about it, I realized that there was you know, so much more to it. Today we are fascinated by geniuses like Zaha Hadid or Thomas Heatherwick or Norman Foster, and we are wowed by the idea that they can create these creations that really are unique and yet are useful. We've always lived in buildings, we've worshipped in buildings, uh, we go to buildings to study, and we've created structures to impose political control over others. Uh, Alexander the Great built an entire city called Alexandria for that. Uh, dictators like Saddam Hussein loved brutalist architecture because in some way it was probably creating a sense of subjugation for their populations. And for me, telling those stories actually coming out of that, um, I think is really interesting, but also can showcase a lot of how as humans we continue to aspire to creating incredible things. So. Uh, one of my favorite places in the world, I've only been here once and I hope I can go again and I really recommend it as a travel tip, is in Japan. It's called Naoshima Island and it's actually part of 12 islands in the southeastern part of Japan and you can go there if you get to Tokyo, you can take a train direct. It's a little bit confusing because everything is always in Japanese, but it is well worth it. Um, every three years there's a triennale called the Setuchi Triennale, which is probably the best time to go. But the history of Naoshima Island is that 30 years ago it was undergoing complete industrial decline. Uh, nobody was visiting and it has these incredible people who live there who um, are artists, they're artisans, they have been there for centuries and they were basically uh, in this incredibly poor area with very little to sustain them and they were starting to leave. So this Japanese industrialist actually started the Benese Art Site Project, which was a collaboration with the architect Tadao Ando to create these three major installations on this island. Uh, each of them is made of studded concrete. They blend into the landscape and yet they kind of stand out of it. So a lot of it is using the concept of wabi-sabi, which is a Japanese concept, which thinks about how to integrate nature and human construction in ways that um, are probably too complicated for me to explain, but really are the theory behind this architecture. Uh, the first building is called the Chichu Art Museum, and it's built mostly underground, and it has an entire room dedicated to Monet's paintings and artworks. It's meant to be very meditative. You have to take off your shoes before you go in. Um, there's site-specific installations by Walter de Maria and also James Tarrell. And then there's a second museum dedicated just to the Korean artist Lee Ufan, which is also incredible. And then finally, there's an open-air sort of structure, which is a museum and gardens with site-specific structures by Yayoi Kusama, uh, Nikki de Sanfal, and tons and tons of international architects that, uh, artists, not architects, and you kind of wander around and you see these pieces and you just have this weird sense of being on an island and seeing this incredible landscape. So the art is on separate islands? There's All of this is on Naoshima and then there's separate islands where new artists are invited to come and to create pieces. One of my favorite pieces was actually by this collective. It's an Indian and Norwegian collective and they're based in Bangalore. They're called Pores and Rao. And they took a hut and they've put this amazing installation inside of it, but you can only access the hut at one time during the day and otherwise it's flooded uh, by the tide. So it's kind of scary to visit, but you have to be there and you couldn't be anywhere else because the tide is gonna come in. And so you're very aware of your the sense of place and being in a very specific environment. And, and when you leave, you feel that you've seen something that many people wouldn't have seen because it would have been hard to get to. And also there's something very, um, 
moving, I think, about the idea of thinking of you know people who live in remote places and who are unseen and unrecognized and yet are still there. And these sorts of projects actually open up doors and windows to them. So I love it, and I love the combination between art and architecture and also the fact that it's allowing you to be part of the lives of these Japanese people who you know, are very private and are going about their business otherwise. Amazing. So how can we represent that in the cabinet? Are we going to put a, do a, a postcard or is there Yeah, I think a, a postcard, a postcard or a book or uh, maybe a little, um, I actually have. Key ring? One, yeah, they have these little, um, I love Japanese pottery. I love just random things that I'll never use, obviously. And um, Is your house full of stuff that you collect? Oh my God. Do you collect, is it cluttered? It's not cluttered, but there's a lot of pottery. I don't know why. And none of it is ever big enough to put things in because it's always something I can pack. But anyway, I do have a, a, a kind of a ceramic rendering of one of the buildings, so we can take that with us. Perfect. Great. And then coming back to what you're doing at Google, I was interested to know what's happening in terms of where you're moving to next. Um, obviously, I read a lot about AI, AR... What's the most exciting things that are happening that we'll see happening over the next few years? Well, we think a lot about creating more experiential moments. Sometimes it works really well. We did a beautiful 360 film at Osborne House in partnership with English Heritage. Queen Victoria built this summer home with Prince Albert and it has really ornate Indian ceilings in one room and then it has amazing Italian architecture on the outside and huge gardens. And so we did a 360 video there with the curator. and. It was very lovely because he's a wonderful, very learned man. It wasn't very showy, and he just shows you around this incredible site. In other cases, VR films have just fallen flat because you might as well have seen it in a regular film. We worked on a collaboration, actually, with Paul Smith, um, which we released earlier this year, and that was really fun. It's called The Art Palette. And the idea is you can take your phone using the Google Arts and Culture app and take a picture of anything. We love that he's inspired by color, and that's how he thinks about design and uh, really his creations. And what the app will do is it will spit out to you using the color palette of the photo that you took. You pick a couple of colors that are most important for you out of that photo. All of the artworks in our collection which have the same color palette. So that for us is something that's using machine learning in a way that could be useful if you're a designer, an advertiser, or an artist, but also could just be inspirational and help you to fall upon any particular piece of art. So really for us, machine learning has been a really fun way of pushing things forward. And I think the second space is obviously augmented reality. Everyone is going to be able to access it through their phones increasingly now, uh, whatever phone you have. And it allows for a lot of freedom of being in place. What's uh, an example of augmented reality when it comes to experiencing art through your phone? So we did a very beautiful collaboration with the Grand Palais in Paris last year where we recreated uh, the site of Palmyra in Syria. We captured using drone footage with one of our partners the site uh, when in April 2000. 16, when it was partially destroyed, and then in November that year, when it was almost completely destroyed. And then we recreated, using augmented reality, the whole site of Palmyra as it originally would have been a couple of thousand years ago, then in both those times that year. Using your phone and looking at your phone, you could then see both at scale sort of gigantic, looking up at it, as well as looking down and shrinking it down to size, both the kind of scale of it and the majesty and the beauty and the details of this 
amazing physical Roman site in Syria, but also you could see the destruction. And because you're using augmented reality, because you're holding it in your hands, there was something very, very moving and evocative for all of the people seeing it. Uh, and it really translated also the idea of the preservation of culture and how technology now can really be brought into looking at that. So that's what we're working on a lot now is preservation. We have, we're working with an archaeologist on our team. Uh, he and I launched a project on ancient Maya last year with the British Museum and we're continuing to expand on that. Is Can you use things like augmented reality to recreate a space to make it very interactive but to also have you have complete access to the rest of your surroundings and you'll be seeing a lot more of that from us and just in general mm -hmm. I think uh, in the next year. And what so that's from the sort of more practical side and I think also more from the actual artistic side in terms of what art is. Do you, How far do you think we are from some AI entity creating art? Or is that even something that is something you've thought about or is possible? Well, we're thinking about it all the time. I, you know, there's been AI inventing music now for a while, AI writing books, uh, AI creating art is sort of the next step of it. At the end of the day, I think we all really believe in the idea of uh, humans having something which uh, is surprising, which is pushing boundaries uh, with an empathy that a machine would not have. But it certainly is happening, and you'll probably start seeing a lot more examples of it. How that's judged by museums and the experts is really for them to say as to whether they think it's worthy of being part of their collections or showcased in their museums. But we're definitely seeing it happening more and more. And I wonder if we'll see it happening in fashion now. Also, you know, thinking about you know, looking at trends and I don't know, I guess based on our conversation, I just, I always feel that there is always going to be an appeal around what is unique and what is personal. And I almost feel that younger people care more about that authenticity experience, knowing that something wasn't just digitally recreated uh, than we would expect. And I often find it surprising how important that is to them. So I wonder if even if there is going to be more and more forms of using technology to create things that are beautiful um, or moving, that will always still have room for things that are just completely devoid of any technology. And I suppose that's why your role is so important as well. You sort of represent exactly that, of what you've just been saying. What is the last thing that we're going to put into your cabinet at Five Carlos Place? So I wanted to talk a little bit about jewellery. Um, I, I I'd just like to say you're wearing amazing jewellery. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I love jewellery. I think um, I've grown up in a, with a lot of powerful women from South Asia around me. So jewellery is very important to us. And so most of the time I love wearing old pieces. I have art deco pieces from my grandmother. I've stolen a lot of things that my mother probably doesn't know about. <laughs> uh, a lot of kind of more traditional. Hang on, don't you have two sisters? I have two sisters. And a brother. So how, a brother. how's the jewellery? Are they also stealing all the jewellery? I you? feel like it's. we'll get to know. My brother will not. He's. Um, but there will be a time when things are being locked away now. But <laughs> I actually think I like jewelry more than my sisters do, so maybe they should take note of that. Um, but also I have friends who design things and I, you know, I have a couple of friends. So this ring that you really liked is designed by my friend Sienna Crawford and it's all made in South Africa and um, she, you know, has these incredible designs, they're limited editions and I love the fact that she's going and sourcing this. It's like a, looks like a stack of gold rings with diamonds and they're kind of done in a quite irregular irregular shapes which is what makes it look so nice 
Yeah, it takes the irregularity and makes it very beautiful and somehow makes it symmetrical. And I think part of that is that she's thinking about it, is how to play around with what's there um, and using stones that are sourced in a way that's clean. I love all of her stuff. It's all very statement PC. She uses a lot of stones from South Africa, Travertine, and other you know, strong colors, bold shapes, and each of them is its sort of a piece in and unto itself. Um, and she travels very often sourcing her stones from both India and South Africa. So I love her stuff. And then I have another very dear friend who has a much more spiritual aesthetic. Um, she creates individual talismanic pieces. So she thinks a lot more about the stone, the shape of the stone, what the stone represents, where on your body should, you should be wearing it. And it's called Sura Jewelry. And her name is Tara, and she has everything made in Bangkok and spends painstaking detail on time on uh, her collections and, and what they represent. And I think, because I know them, I think there's a lot more meaning to knowing of the effort and the thought that goes into them creating these things. But I'm always on the lookout uh, for that. And then I have things that are just sort of, this is made of brass. It's another ring. It's in the shape of a bird. And it's from... I think it's from the yoga barn in Bali, but I just love it and I wear it all the time. So I think that a little bit of mixing it up is also really important. So which one would you put in the cabinet? Which one could you bear to part with for Oh God, I will, I will part with Sienna's rings if it can be in the cabinet. Um, we'll have to get a security, I, <laughs> <laughs> security guard on that. Um, but, yeah. That's great. Well... Thank you so much for sharing those with us. It's been lots of fun. And I'm really excited to see what you guys come up with next. Well, thank you so much. It's been so fun speaking with you. And I'm really excited for the space and the idea that you're thinking of in terms of experience and also connection. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.